and amen. Well, church, great to see you guys again today. And if this is the first time or first time since uh, in a long time or since Easter or whatever else it may be, uh, we started a new series on the life of Jesus Christ from eternity past to all the way to eternity still future back in the fall. We're continuing with that until this summer. And so uh, we're kind of out of the teaching ministry of Jesus and looking at some of the different encounters that he had with various people along the way. We're going to keep doing that today. We're going to pick up right after the resurrection. So this is kind of a continuation of where we were last week here. And uh, we're going to be looking at John chapter 21, specifically uh, the restoration of Peter and how God brings people back from the pit of shame and despair. And so if you have your Bible, you can go ahead and turn there. John 21 is where we're going to be. Uh, if you didn't bring it with you, no big deal. I'm going to be putting some of these passages up on the screen, so it'll be easy for you to, to follow along with there. But uh, for, the, for a good few years probably, uh, up until recently, I'd say uh, upper, Fixer Upper on HGT was e easily one of our favorite shows to watch on TV. Any of you guys big, giant Chip and Joe fans? Yeah, you, you're no, no shame. Like, they're America's couple right there. Who doesn't love that couple? Um, I've seen the Instagram post. How many of you guys have been to the Waco, been to Waco before on purpose, right? Um, he went. It was Magnolia. You took the pictures and the selfies. You waited over an hour in line to eat those cupcakes and to go buy shiplap and stuff like that. Like, we all love Chip and Joe, right? I, if you've not seen the show, it's on HGTV, Fixer Upper. Uh, the beauty of the show is that essentially they're able to see beauty in things that no one else is able to see beauty in. It's just one of the cool things about it. They, they look at a pile of junk and they see absolutely beautiful things out of it. They're the couple that drives by a junkyard and they're going to see that rusty, uh, that decrepit, rusty old uh, like hubcap or something like that. And they're going to be like, hey, that, that's going to make a great kitchen piece, right? right? And they just see that and, and they grab it and they put it in the kitchen. And sure enough, you're like, I need a rusty hubcap in my kitchen. And you try it and you're going to quickly realize it doesn't work out the same when you try it because they are able to do things you're not able to do. But that's, that's what they do, right? They, they tear out a wall and like underneath the wall, there's shiplap back there. And, and like most people try to cover up shiplap, but she makes it beautiful. And it's just this magical thing that they do. Um, if, if you've ever seen the show, they do some incredible restoration projects there. Um, uh, this is one of my favorite ones. You got the next one right here. This is called the Shotgun House. If you, I don't know if you guys remember this one. Um, from the show or anything, tiny, tiny little one-bedroom, uh, rotted out, decrepit home there on the left. And of course, that's the after picture there on the right. Uh, if you remember, they, they bought this thing for about $29,000. It's all they paid for the house. And uh, afterwards, I think it was, it was immediately valued at, uh, do I have that price? No, I don't. It's somewhere like $115,000. You know what it was on the market for not long ago? $950,000. Yo, this is Waco. Like, there's nothing, the school, the, the university's not worth 950, I'm just kidding. <laughs> You're worth it, Baylor. We love you, Baylor. Come on. I'm just kidding. My brother went there. We love you, Sikkim. Okay. Um, like, that, like, 950 grand, though, like, that's insane, right? From a one-bedroom little place. I mean, just, I mean, they, they tidy it up, and you got some after pictures right there. Probably my favorite project, I don't, I don't know if you guys remember this one, the Barn Dominium. You guys remember Barn Dominium? This is, a, I think we got one right here. Literally, that's their home. They're, they're in this field and they're like, hey, uh, I think they're testing Joe a little bit. And they're like, hey, uh, Joe, we want to live in a barn and we want it to be awesome. And uh, literally, that's what they find. They're out in the middle of a field. There's nothing around and They buy that thing for about $180,000 uh, along with a ton of land, obviously. And uh, they turn it around. Shortly after the renovations, um, it's valued at $400,000. So they did a lot in there and, and made it pretty awesome. Uh, recently, it was on the market for $1.2 million out of a barn, church. Like, it's a barn. Like, it looks like that now, so it's kind of nicer. But um, $1.2 million barn. 
But my point is, like, that's what they do. They take things that nobody sees beauty in, and they turn it and make it absolutely beautiful. Uh, one of the cool things about the show is you're going to notice, if you've, if you've been a fan for a while, you go back to season one, um, pretty much there in the beginning, no one knows Chip and Joe very much. They don't know fully what they can do. People aren't confident in their abilities to turn things around in these restoration projects. And I think it's kind of funny because um, they, these, these couples get to the homes, and they bring them to these, you know, the, the whole premise. They bring them to these terrible homes like that, and, um, and the people don't see the vision for it. They always show up, and they're like, What? What are we doing here? And then they walk in and they're like, shag carpet? What? I can't do anything with shag carpet. And they're like, laminate counters? Come on, I want marble. I, I want granite here. What are, we, what are we talking about? And they look in there and like, Chip and Joe are going, yeah, yeah, we, we know. We can see this thing the whole time through. But the beauty of the show is that there's always this scene where pretty much every couple, they sit there and they're doubting them. And they're just sitting there looking at the, the mess that's around them, kind of going, how in the world are they going to make anything beautiful out of such a decrepit and broken home. And the reason I bring that up, church, is like that's exactly where Peter is immediately after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I mean, you remember his whole story, right? He's the, he's the bold, uh, verbal disciple that's sitting there saying, hey, Jesus, like even if everybody else walks away, I'm never, ever, ever going to leave you or walk away. I'm never going to deny you. Like that's who Peter was, bold declarations. And immediately after the resurrection, he's sitting there looking at the brokenness of his life a life that's made all these promises and bold declarations only to fail over and over again. And after coming after the, probably the worst failure of his life into the denial of Jesus Christ. I mean, you remember that scene, right? It's coming after the Last Supper and, and, uh, and, and, and Jesus is kind of saying his goodbyes. And Peter sits up and he says, hey, even if all these other fools over here, they leave you, I'm never going to take off and leave you. And Jesus is like, don't speak so quickly, Peter, because that's going to happen to you before the night's even done. And, of course, he's right about it. You remember at the end of the night, he's betrayed by Judas. They're taking him away. Um, he's standing before the, the high priest. He's kind of in this courtyard. They're trying him a little bit. Peter's off in the distance watching the whole thing. And this little teenage girl comes up to him and says, hey, aren't you with him? Aren't you one of his disciples? And he looks at her emphatically, and he's like, I don't even know who this guy is. I don't know who this man is. And they circle back around a little bit later on, and second time comes through. He says, like, no, 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 I, I know you. I recognize you. You're, you're that guy. You're with Peter. And he's like, I don't know who this guy is. Stop talking to me. Like, I'm not with that man over there. Third time, it comes around, and sure enough, there, she's like, yeah, yeah, you're with him, right? And, and the text is going to say, and Luke, Luke is going to say that, like, at this point in time, Peter starts cursing. Like, he starts, he's like, he's like going, I'm not a Christian, right? I'm, not, I'm cursing. I'm not with that man. You don't know what you're talking about. I've never seen him in my life. And, of course, all of a sudden, the cock begins to crow, and he remembers Jesus' words. And Luke is going to say, at that point in time, Jesus looks over and makes eyes with Peter. Peter makes eyes with Jesus. And in the middle of that place, he realizes what's taking place, and he bursts into tears, and he runs away in total and complete shame of what he's done. Church, I don't know if you've ever been in that place before, but, like, it's a crippling place to be, to realize, like, I've completely blown it. I got everything that I promised to do and everything that I said I was going to go the direction in, like none of it's, I, I, I'm a total and complete mess and failure. It's an absolutely crippling place to be. I'm thinking back a number of years ago, back when I was doing young adult ministry at Northwest, uh, we were having our worship service. I was standing in the back during worship and greeting people as they were coming in late. And there's a guy who was kind of hanging out in the lobby a little bit. He didn't want to walk in the service that night. He'd never been before. So I went out there and introduced myself and said, hey, come on in. I'd love to have you and, and all this kind of thing. And and he's like, I don't, I don't know if I can make it tonight. And I'm like, well, you're already here. Why don't you, why don't you just come on in? And he's like, I, I, I really can't do it. And I was like, what's going on? 
And he's like, I feel like such a hypocrite being here tonight. He's like, I've always said I would never be that hypocrite that goes to church, and I'm totally a hypocrite. I have no business being in church tonight pretending that I'm a Christian or any of these things, and, and I've got no business being here. And I tried to, of course, uh, try to just meet him there and just say, hey, look, you're in a good place. Like, none of us have it together, and there is grace. There, like, we want to just want to sit here and worship. I tried to disseminate some of that stuff. Got him in the door. We're hanging out for the first song. At the end of the first song, he turns and he runs out the, out the worship service and just leaves that night and never, never saw him again. And I'm thinking about a, a guy I was sitting on the plane with coming back from Israel just a number of weeks ago. And I'm sitting there and I'm doing a little bit of work and I'm reading in some books. And he goes, oh, what do you do? I'm a pastor. Oh, you're a pastor. That's fantastic. I used to think I wanted to get in ministry. And we're having this conversation. And he, he, he describes how back when he was in college, he was leading young life and he was discipling all these students. And he was on fire for Jesus and all this stuff. And, and then he just looked away and he's like, yeah, not so much anymore. And I said, well, I was like, what do you mean by that? What's, what's going on? And he goes, well, everything shortly after that, it started to fall apart. And he goes, I started sleeping with my girlfriend. We got pregnant out of wedlock, had a quick marriage. It was the right thing to do. Felt the burden of responsibility, just dove into work there on out and just buried myself in work. And I haven't really gone back to the church very much. And I definitely am not serving or discipling students or anything like that anymore. Church, it's, a, it's an absolutely crippling place to be. In fact, if I could be honest with you, this is probably the conversation that I have with more people about anything else. It's some sort of a hidden shame that's not able to be talked about, that maybe you're able to diagnose or you're not able to diagnose. But it's that thing that's keeping you on the outside saying, hey, I don't really want to go all in. And maybe you know what that is. Maybe you don't know what that is. For one reason or another, you're on the outside kind of going, I'm willing to go this deep, but I'm not willing to go this deep. I'm, really to go, I'm willing to go this far in serving Jesus, but like, there's no way in the world that he could use someone broken and decrepit like me. Like, I remember when that time was for myself. That was my freshman year in college. And it was, this, it was this season I've shared with you guys in the past, but freshman year in college was that year that was probably the most powerful, defining year of my life where he was affirming this call to vocational ministry. Uh, I was diving in for the first time. I was just devouring God's word. I was beginning to teach as a freshman and, and failing in a lot of ways, but enjoying it. Um, and it was this year where it was just all these affirmations and a number of them all along the way. And I get to middle of the year, it's right around Christmas time, uh, and I'm wrapping up that first semester's year uh, of uh, midterms and finals that year. And it was test week, and I was exhausted. I remember, um, I remember going and taking my finals that morning. I was wiped out and exhausted from studying all week long. And I, I'm finally done, and I come back home, and, and there's a corner store at the front of my neighborhood. And I wanted to just simply go and rent a movie, crash on my couch, watch, fall asleep watching a movie the rest of that afternoon. I was that exhausted. And I came back to that corner store, and... Um, and I noticed that there's a guy that's there in the corner store with a bunch of friends. And, and I recognized him from the high school days. His name was Kelly. And he was the guy that was always picked on in high school. Uh, he was always bullied by everybody else. Um, he got into a lot of trouble because of that. He was always trying to find his way. And, and, um, and so he was repeating his senior year in high school because it didn't go, go very well for him. And he was in that store that day along with a group of friends. And they were kind of creating a lot of trouble and being really loud, the manager was getting on to him. And I went in there and just kind of did my thing, rented my movie. I came back out to my car. And when I got into my car, I looked in front of me. And I noticed that Kelly's sitting there on the porch of that corner store that day. All of his friends had taken off. They left him there. And he was just kind of looking dejected, looked down at the ground. 
And I remember sitting there, and it was a flourishing time of ministry where I was just kind of, just like Peter, Jesus, I'm all in. You ever tell me to do something, I'm in. I was sharing the gospel with people. I was just on fire for Jesus. And I remember sitting there looking at him and just being like, being like ooh, Jesus, like you have no idea how tired I am. Like I just got done with the, these finals and I'm exhausted. And I remember hearing as clear as day that I needed to go talk with him and invite him into the car, give him a ride wherever he needed to go, love him, pray for him, listen to him, see what's going on. And so I battled with Jesus, and I was like, I was like God, I, I, like I'm exhausted. I, I deserve a little bit of a break. I've been faithful in all these other things. Like, don't have to get a break. And I remember having this little internal dialogue here. And finally, I gave in and I said, fine, Jesus, I'll go talk to him. I jump out of the car, and I go talk to him. And I'm like, hey, Kelly, I'm so-and-so. You remember me from high school? Looks like you could use a ride. Can I give you a ride somewhere? And he jumped up, and he's like, oh, yeah, that'd be great, man. And I was like, oh, I was like, okay, well, where do you live? He goes, oh, well, my house is about 20, 25 minutes from here. My house was like 30 seconds from there, and so was that couch. And um, he's like, my house is about 20, 25 minutes from here. And he goes, honestly, it's, it's kind of a drive. I've called some people. They're going to come out and get me anyway. I'm really fine. I could just hang out here. They're on their way. I, you really don't need to worry about it. And I sat there, and I said, you know, I go, are you, are you sure about that? And he goes, yeah, yeah, I'm fine. Don't worry about it at all. I've got people. I'll be, I'll be totally fine. And I go, okay. And I got back in that car, and I walked, drove back home. And I remember watching the stupidest movie I've ever seen in my life. I fell asleep on the couch that day, and then I had my nap. And a week later, later, I'm reading his obituary in the newspaper, and he went and he took his life in a Tom Thumb bathroom. And I remember coming back, and I've shared that story here before, but like, like, I was in the middle of that place with Peter. Jesus, I, I'm all in. Like, I'm your man. I, I will follow you. You're calling me into vocational ministry. I'm there with you. I will follow you wherever you want to go. Like, I'll, I'll say the things you want me to say. I'll do the things that you want me to do. And I just sat there, and I remember sitting there just looking at the mirror going, Lord, how in the world are you going to take something so broken and something so weak and so massive of a failure and turn that into something beautiful? How in the world... Would you use someone like me ever for the glory of your name? And I sat there in shame for months, just weeping over the what ifs, what could have taken place, what would have happened had I been faithful that day, what would have happened if I weren't such a failure and losing it and just dropping the ball. And church is exactly where Peter is in this story. And it's not a complicated story, but it's a story that like at some point in time, we've been there to some degree or another, have we not? Like you've been there, and you know what failure feels like to various degrees or another. You remember making those promises to God and saying, never again. And you remember saying, hey, I'm in here, and, and I'm going to follow you, and I'll never be a hypocrite like those people over there. I'm never going to be like my parents and what, and what I was raised in over there, and then all of a sudden you're here. And maybe some of you, you came in today, and like it was very difficult to walk into this room here today because you know the things that took place maybe last night or the week before or back in college or the young adult years, and you're sitting there kind of going, okay, my time is done. He's moved on to more faithful people than here. It's exactly where Peter is, church. It's exactly where Peter is. And the beauty of John chapter 21 is John chapter 20 feels like that the story is finished. John starts writing, and, and it feels like the whole resurrection story is all done. And then he tacks on this one more story in order to illustrate and to show us that the resurrection story isn't complete until you know the resurrection power 
in your life today and what it can do to disseminate the shame and the guilt and the condemnation that you feel every day, which keeps you far away saying, Jesus, I'm willing to go this deep with you. I'm willing to serve you this much, but I'm not willing to go this much. I'm willing to go this far with you, but I won't jump all the way in like I know that you've called me to jump all the way in. That's exactly where Peter is. And if that's exactly where you are today, or maybe you've been there in the past or you will be very soon or your loved one's there right now, all I want to do is just simply show you how Jesus enters into Peter's life in the middle of his massive failure, in the middle of this shame, and he begins to restore him. And he begins to just take him out and show him that he's not quite done and that his life still has a hope and a future in it. John chapter 21 is where I want to be. Follow along with me. Here's what it says in verse 1. It simply says, afterward, meaning directly after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and after two other times where Jesus appeared to the different disciples as the resurrected Christ. Remember that first night was the night of the resurrection. One week later is when he, he meets the disciples and Thomas. That's what we talked about last week. That was a week after that. So sometime after all of that, Jesus comes, and this time they're by the Sea of Galilee, and he appears again for the third time. So it says that it happened this way in verse 2. Simon Peter... Thomas, who is also known as Didymus, which, again, I've got no idea why John keeps bringing in his nickname here. He does it three times in his gospel. I don't know if he's, like, rubbing in the fact that he's got a bad nickname there. Um, chapter 11, 20, and 21, he's always doing that. Anyway, Simon, Peter, Thomas, there's Nathaniel from Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, who are James and John, and then two other disciples who don't get mentioned here because they're not important enough to be named, evidently. It says that they're all together, and then Peter says to them, I'm going fishing, boys. I'm going fishing. There's a lot of commentators that debate about whether or not this is significant uh, of what's really going on here because there's not a lot known about why Peter wants to go fishing that night. I mean, a lot of us don't need an excuse, right? We're simply, it's like, hey, we're going fishing because fishing's awesome. That's what we do with the boys. We want to go, we want to go fishing a little bit. I can enjoy it. And some people think that's what's happening. He just, he loves fishing. He's done it in the past. And so he just wants a night out with the, with the guys. The um, problem with that view is that in a little while, we're going to find out they are fishing all night long. They don't catch anything. In other words, like, that's not what you do if you're looking for a little bit of fun. You don't hang out there all night long in failure, not catching anything the entire night long. Um, it's it just, it just not what you do if you're trying to look for a little bit of fun. Let me ask it like this. George, anyone ever try to bury yourself in your work when you're trying to silence the voices of condemnation that are going on in your head? Anyone ever realize that... Um, that work and going overtime is actually pretty good at numbing some of the pain that you may be feeling. I mean, keep in mind, this is what Peter did before he met Jesus. He's a professional fisherman. It is what he did. He knows how to fish. He's been very, very successful at it. So it's not unreasonable to think that, hey, in the middle of this season where I'm thinking that, hey, I, all I can see is the failure in front of my face, I want to go back to the one thing that I know I'm not a failure at. This is the one thing that I know I'm really good at. And he's going in and he's working overtime. And some of us know what that feels like, right? We, we've turned to our work and said, you know what? Like, I may be blowing it at home. I may be blowing it with my wife. And I may be blowing it with my kids. And I may be blowing it with my husband. And so I'm just going to dive into my work over here because here I know I get to get a bonus here and a little bit of affirmation that I'm going to be doing something well over here. It's what we do all the time. We bury ourselves in our work when we're trying to silence the condemnation and the shame and the failures that we may be feeling inside. I think it's exactly what's happening with Peter here in this text. He's good at fishing. And so he's saying, hey, I'm not good at a whole lot else right now. And in the middle of this place, I want to go and I want to go fishing. So the boys are looking at him and they say, okay, that's great. We're going to go with you. And so it says that they go back out into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. 
Now, again, like I said, that's not very common for professional fishermen, right? Like professional fishermen, you go out into the Sea of Galilee, you're catching fish for most people, right? It's not how it typically works out for me. I've shared this before. I'm pretty much the worst cursed fisherman in the world. And um, it was really bad right now because Caleb only wants to go fishing. He loves fishing, and I've never caught anything with him. And I'm like, buddy, hey, other dads, they're able to catch things. And um, it's actually a lot more fun when you do that, and, and I've never caught anything. I'm not kidding you. I got literally cursed when it comes to fishing. Back in high school, my buddy's dad was a professional angler, and he's like, he's, he saw it as a challenge. He's like, you're a cursed man. You've never caught anything. And so he's like, I'm going to fix this. And so he takes me and my buddy out to the middle of the Gulf of Mexico on his boat, and we're going to go fishing all day long, and we're going to go catch something, and then I'm going to have my first catch, right? And I'm not kidding you. We go out there, and we catch zero all day long. I mean, it's just absolutely nuts. And I'm like, oh, Mr. Huff, maybe you need to try the other side of the boat. And uh, it doesn't work and stuff. But I mean, I'm not kidding. I'm just the worst fisherman in the world. But like, that typically does not happen for professional fishermen. But it does this night. Church, what's going on here? Why, why is this happening? Why are they going out there and it's just, it's not happening like it typically does? I mean, Jesus is beginning to mess with them, right? I mean, he's beginning to stir the pot a little bit, and he's just beginning to just show them, hey, you know what, prepare them for this. Hey, I've got something a little bit later on I want you to see. By the way, church, like, if you want to know that Jesus is coming after you, and you want to know that Jesus is trying to get you to stop doing something in order to say yes to something else, just look at where he's complicating your life. This is something that he does quite a bit. He loves to complicate things and say, you know what, there used to be rhythm, there used to be blessing, there used to be freedom in these things. And then he, used to, he loves to come in and, and, and just make things a little bit more complicated in order to help you stop long enough that you may prayerfully consider that he may want you to do something different. I remember this is all throughout scripture. Jonah, Jonah, hey, I want you to go to Nineveh and preach the gospel. He doesn't like that idea. He jumps on a boat, tries to flee from the presence of God. What does he do? God sends a storm. It gets really, really complicated. Everybody on the boat's terrified for their life. And so Jonah says, you know what? Rather than repenting and giving in to the original assignment of God, um, I'm just gonna dive overboard and take my life and end the whole thing right now. What, is, what does God do then? It's a massive fish. Like swallows him whole, preserves his life, spits him back onto the beach. You wanna talk about complicated. Like that's complicated. Three days inside of the belly of this fish and he survives. Like it's what he does a lot of times in order to help us come to this place where we need to realize, hey, something about my life needs to stop right now so that I can say yes to something else. Like a few years ago, before I came here, things got very complicated professionally. And there wasn't any tension, there wasn't any problems. There was a brand new boss who I still love and respect and call friend to this day. The job description began to change. Things get, got a little complicated, and we started prayerfully discerning, God, are you moving in the middle of this thing, and are you trying to get us to say no to something else in order that we can say yes to what you may want from us in the very future? And I want to be very clear. Complication does not necessarily mean you need to bail, you need to stop what you're doing and run. It simply means that you need to start prayerfully discerning, God, is there something in my life that needs to stop? Maybe it's something in my character that's causing all the complications. But is there something in my life that needs to stop so that I can say yes to something new? It's exactly what I think is happening here with Peter. There's complication coming at the very beginning of this miracle, which is going to convince Peter that something about his running, something about his distance, something about the shame that he may be feeling needs to stop, that he can say yes to something new that Jesus wants to do in his life. Eventually, I'd argue that that may be true for you. Where is there complication in your life? And what could potentially the Holy Spirit be saying to you in the middle of that complication? And so things are very complicated. They're out there fishing all night long. It's not going well. They catch absolutely nothing. Doesn't happen very much. And so it says that early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore. 
Verse 4, but the disciples didn't realize it was Jesus. They were about 100 yards away. It's early in the morning. They can't really see that well. He calls out to them, friends. I love this. Little boys is the literal word that he uses there. Little boys. Little boys. The grown fishermen like being called little boys. Does anybody like being called little boys or little girls? Like No one likes that, especially after a night of failure on the lake. And nevertheless, Jesus is messing with them a little bit. And little boys, haven't you any fish? Love their response. They just go, no. So Jesus said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. Makes sense, right? That's where fish are. They're always on the right side of the boat. <laughs> no, like nothing about this makes any sense. And nevertheless, like no grown people enjoy getting unsolicited advice from strangers. This is the worst advice you could possibly give. It's kind of like going to Kevin Sumlin uh, when he was an Aggie coach and being like, hey, Kevin, you probably should score a little bit more than the opponent. Um, it's just, he's like stating the, he's just, it's just unhelpful advice right here. Nevertheless, they look at him and they do what he says. And so it says, when they did, they were unable to haul in the net because of the large number of fish. Church, is this story beginning to sound familiar at all to you? Like, it's not the first time that he's done this miracle, is it? Like, he's done this, but did anybody remember when the, when the first time was that this took place? It was on the night that Jesus first called Peter to follow him. He's bringing him back to the very beginning. And he's making him remember everything that he's capable of doing. You remember the scene, Luke chapter 5? Um, Jesus is out there teaching on the, on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, which is where they brought, brought him back to here in this passage. And it says that Jesus jumps in Peter's boat, goes out a little ways, and he's preaching from the boat to the shores to everybody that's there. He gets finished preaching, all the crowds disperse, and he goes, Peter, I want you to take me out further, and we're going to go fishing some more. And Peter looks at him, he's like, Jesus, we've been out here fishing all day, all night long. We've caught absolutely nothing. And he goes, I know that, but I want you to trust me, and I want you to go out and throw out your net one more time. And so Peter reluctantly does that, and he's kind of furious, and he's angry and frustrated and upset, and he goes back out there, and of course, he throws the net over one more time, and the passage says that the nets were so full of fish, they began to break, and the boats actually began to sink. And you remember what takes place in the story? Like, Peter looks at Jesus, and in the middle of this thing, this is the thing that captures his attention. And Peter, all of a sudden, looks at the face of Jesus inside this boat, and he falls down, and he simply says, get away from me, Lord, because I'm a sinner. And he falls prostrate, laid out in the middle of that boat before Jesus. Get away from me, Lord, because I'm a sinner. As he begins to realize who it is that's sitting here in the middle of this boat. This isn't just a normal guy. This isn't just another buddy fisherman. This is a son of God. This is someone who's able to command the fish in the sea. Get away from me, Lord, for I'm a sinner. And you remember how Jesus responds to him? It's this beautiful saint. Jesus just looks at Peter and he says, Peter, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid because from now on, you're going to be with me. You're going to be with me, just follow me, and I'll make you a fisher of men. Church, don't miss what's happening here in this scene. Like in the middle of Peter's greatest failure, Jesus is recreating the night of his original calling in order to remind him that the failures of your past don't define your future, that the calling that he had for Peter back then is still his calling today, that the door of fellowship is still open, that his life is not completely done. I mean, church, like, this is Peter's miracle. This is all about Peter and Jesus. Jesus is meeting Peter in the middle of the scene. This is not Matthew's tax collector booth or Nathaniel's fig tree or other personal experiences like that. Like, this is Peter's miracle. This is the one. Like, it's why John's going to look at Peter when it all happens and say, Peter, it's the Lord. Like, why is he calling out Peter there? This is Peter's miracle. Like, the whole thing takes place. The, 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 the nets are filled with fish. John looks at Peter and says, Peter, this is the Lord. 
In other words, like this is the thing that you've been waiting for. This time with Jesus, you've always been wondering how he feels about you in the middle of your failure and in the middle of your condemnation, in the middle of your shame. You've been wondering where he is and how he's going to respond to you. And there he is. He's right there on the shore. This is your miracle, Peter. And, and I love how Peter responds here. And I hope that this is how we respond to Jesus all the time. But it says that in verse 7 that Peter just grabs his outer garment and he jumps in the water and he starts swimming for Jesus. In other words, it's like, it's like Forrest Gump when he sees like, Lieutenant Dan. Remember that? Remember that? He's like, he's like, he's like driving by. He's like, Lieutenant Dan, Lieutenant Dan. And like Gump just dives in, just jumps in, shoes on, clothes on, everything. Starts like swimming furiously for the shores to see Lieutenant Dan. Like there's nothing beautiful about this scene. It's unsophisticated in every way. Like he's not, it's not even a beautiful swan dive in there or anything. He like grabs his coat and his shoes and just gets in there and he's like swimming furiously for Jesus. I love what John says. He simply says, the rest of us, we just followed in the boat <laughs> with the nets full of fish for, we were only about 100 yards away from the, from the shore. In other words, like we did this three times and we were there with him. Some of us are kind of going, okay, yeah, I, I, I get what Peter's doing right here. I've been there. I've been there in the middle of a shame. But the problem is, like, I don't even know where to begin in coming back to Jesus. Like, I don't even know. I don't know the words. I don't know the church game. I don't know how to pray. I don't know how to say the right things. I don't know how to wear the right things. I don't know the rhythms of the church. I don't know how to fit in. I don't even know where to begin in coming back to Jesus. And the beauty of what I think that Jesus is showing us right here is that it does not have to be pretty. It simply needs to be honest. It could be an absolute mess. You can go gump on the whole thing, and you can just, just jump into the waters, and you can just swim furiously after Jesus. Like, it does not have to be this beautiful, um, this beautiful, polished kind of a thing, as long as it's honest and coming to Jesus. I'm thinking of my friend B Billy, who's been around the church for the past three years here. He's given me permission to share his story as many times as I possibly want to, and we were talking about it this past week, and we were reminiscing a little bit on when he first came to Dallas Bible Church. But when he first came, it was about three years ago. It was a Wednesday night. We were doing a prayer meeting here in this room, prayer and worship that evening. He was fresh out of prison. He'd ruined his life with meth, drugs, and made a number of terrible decisions, landed him in prison. Somewhere in the middle of prison, God got a hold of his life. He made a profession of faith. He made a promise that if I ever get out of this cell, that I'm going to somehow, I'll, I'll walk with you, I'll obey you, you'll have my life, that kind of a thing. And it was the night that he was released from prison and he's coming back home to the place where he previously lived. And, and he's driving by. He sees a sign out front about a prayer gathering that night. And he comes into this room. And he just simply sits on the back row and just starts weeping. And we see that he's there. And some guys, they come around him. And they start talking with him. And they simply pray with him and stuff. And he just says, I, I don't even know what to do. I don't even know where to begin. I don't know why I'm here. All I know is that I gave my life to Jesus and when I was in jail. And I don't even know where to begin. I don't know what to say. I stink. My clothes aren't good. Like, I don't even know what to do. And those men came around him, and they loved him. They met him in the middle of that place. They welcomed him into their home for dinner. They brought him into their life group. Three years later, he's sober. He's walking faithfully with the Lord Jesus Christ. Recently, he got married. There's this beautiful reconciliation and restoration taking place. And I think what Jesus is showing us is that it does not have to be pretty. It could be, simply, it could be as simple as just showing up. And just saying, Jesus, like, I don't even know what I'm doing here. I don't know the words to say. I don't have things memorized. I got blown up my entire life. But all I'm doing is just turning back around and saying, I'm here. I'm here. I, I, I'm trusting that you're going to heal me. You're going to restore me. You're going to do something new in my life. And what Jesus is just showing us here is that he does not require pretty. He simply wants honest. Just honest. First steps. 
wherever it may be. He gets back to the shore in verse 9. Says that Jesus already has a fire of burning coals there with fish already on it and some bread. In other words, like Jesus didn't even need the fish. He didn't need what Peter's bringing to the table. <laughs> he's, he's already got the fish. And so Jesus says to him and says, bring some of the fish that you've caught. I'll let you participate in what I'm doing. So Simon Peter climbs back into the boat, drags the net ashore. It's full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. You know what's significant about 153? Why don't you do a little math with me? 153 divided by 7, the perfect number. Multiply that by 12, which is the number of disciples that are following Jesus. What do you get? It doesn't matter. It has nothing to do with any of that. Like, there's nothing special about the number right here, right? It's just 153 fish in this net. Um, people do this all the time. They try to do numerology and stuff all throughout Scripture and try to make it mean special things. It doesn't mean anything. There's just 153 of them. They're fishermen. They brag about numbers and size and stuff like that. Um, did somebody actually do that math? I bet you did. I bet you there's some people who are like, yeah, I know what that is. I have no idea what that is. But I want you to see what he says next. Jesus just looks at him and he says simply, come and have breakfast with me. Come and have breakfast with me. Church, who do you invite into your home for breakfast? Family and friends. Jesus just looks at him and says, I want you to come and have breakfast with me. In the middle of your failure, in the middle of your shame and your condemnation, this relationship's not done. I'm not done with you. Your, your, your life isn't over. Your usefulness isn't done. Just come and have breakfast with me. A little while ago, this past, earlier this week, I was watching Netflix documentary, David Letterman. He does all these interviews with different people. It's really fascinating. I was watching the one with George Clooney. And Clooney was talking about how growing up, he had to overcome a lot of Catholic shame in his life and guilt for the things that he'd done. And he said he'd, he would always avoid confession. He didn't like it. He grew up in a small town and he would try to go up there and um, he was afraid that, hey, the, the, the priest is going to recognize his voice, know the things that he's confessing to, shame him all around town, and kind of bring it like that. And so he goes, yeah, I would avoid confession. And instead, what I'd do is I'd fill my shoes with gravel, and then I'd put them on my feet, and I'd jump off the top bunk bed and just land on my feet and just ruin my feet, because that's what I thought that God would have me do because of my sin. Church, some of us still think that. And the reason we think that is because the voice in our head is condemning us in ways that Jesus never has. And it's continuing to repeat, and you feel like that because you say, hey, since I'm not okay with myself, and I can't, oh, I can't forgive myself, and I can't move on, surely God cannot move on either. Surely God hasn't forgiven me because I'm not able to forgive myself. And some of us still think that we need to make ourselves pay. We need to jump on gravel over and over and over again, ruin our feet, and then, then that's when we're going to realize the weight of what we've actually done. And what I want you to see, you've always wondered, okay, how does he feel about me in the middle of my, in the middle of my failure and shame? Like Jesus is cooking them breakfast. And he's simply saying, let's eat. But how do you feel? Like in, when I blew it with Kelly, God, how do you feel about me in the middle of that time? Come on, let's eat breakfast. He's not sitting there saying, hey, put gravel in your shoes. Go further. Beat yourself up over and 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 over again. He's saying, come and let's eat breakfast. It says that when they finished eating, Jesus said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And Peter says, yes, Jesus, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, so feed my lambs. 
Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord. Like, you know that I love you, Jesus, uh, Jesus said, take care of my sheep. Again, for the third time, Jesus said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And the text is going to say at this point in time, uh, Peter's getting really, really frustrated because he knows exactly what Jesus is doing. He's bringing him back to the night of that betrayal. He's bringing him back to the night that he denied even knowing him three different times. The whole thing is designed to recreate that scene. Peter's declaration of the Last Supper is, even if none of these guys over here keep walking with you, I never will. And so Jesus says, Peter, do you love me more than these over here? The night of his denial, the whole scene took place around a charcoal fire. This is also taking place around a charcoal fire. Peter denies knowing him three different times. And so Jesus asked him the exact same question three different times. Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? I mean, the whole thing is a recreation of that terrible night. Church, why is he doing that? Why is he bringing him back to that moment right there? Because a lot of us think that, hey, that's just Jesus kind of saying, just like sticking the dagger in a little bit further and making you feel the weight of your pain. Some people think that, hey, this is Jesus being mean, saying, hey, hey, Peter, do you love me? Because it sure didn't feel like you loved me a few days ago. Peter, like, do you love me now? What, what, what do you think, buddy? You love me now because you really blew it a few weeks back. Sure didn't seem like you were with me and that you were going to always be with me forever back then. It seems like he's rubbing salt on the wound. It's not what he's doing at all. Jesus knows that if you want to have a fruitful and faithful future, you've got to be willing to let him heal the pains in your past. Like Jesus knows that you want this fruitful future to be completely set free. You've got to be willing to let him bring healing into your past. Think about just for a second like how any broken relationship you've been in is ever restored. You try really hard. Think about how restoration, make, how it takes place. Which apology is actually going to work? In the middle of that brokenness, maybe it's a loved one, a spouse, a friend, a family member, something like that. I mean, in the middle of that place, you go to them and you're like, babe, I told you I was sorry already. already. Get over it. But babe, I, I, why are you crying? Get over it. I said I'm sorry. Gosh, stop making me feel so bad on my myself. God, like, does that ever solve anything? What about the one where you go and say, all right, here it is, fine. You want an apology? I'm sorry that you were hurt by the things that I said. <laughs> Don't we love that one? That's great. That's a classic non-apology apology. Does it actually ever heal anything? What about the one where the spouse comes home and they say, you know what? I've listened to you. And I went away and I, I spent some time in prayer and I began to think about the things that you said. In the middle of that time, like, the Holy Spirit revealed to me that you're right. The way that I talked to you was completely inappropriate. I was dismissive in the things that I said. I was flat out wrong in my tone of voice. I lose my anger and I let it get the best of me. And I want you to know how deeply sorry I am for the things that I've done to you. Like which apology actually restores a broken relationship? Is it the one that glosses over the past, minimizes it, pretend that it doesn't exist? Or is it the one that has the humility to simply go back there for a moment and say, you know what, you're right, I'll deal with this. Like I was broken and everything that I said and did was completely wrong. And I want you to know that I see that and I recognize it. And I'm gonna do everything in my power to make sure that it never happens again. Will you ever forgive me? Which is the one that actually brings about genuine forgiveness? Where that hurt person comes back and says, you're completely forgiven. And that forgiveness has the opportunity to wash over the guilt that's going on inside of my soul for the things that I actually did 
and is actually going to be able to bring renewal in the future so that you don't continue in the same arrogant, cold-hearted path that you were in before. What Jesus is showing us right here is that the way to freedom and the way to peace in the future is to allow him to, for a moment, go back to the past and to allow him to bring healing and, and, and relief from the pains of your past. It's why we do freedom prayer ministry here at this church. It's why we've mobilized a group of people inside this church that will meet you one-on-one. And in the middle of um, uh, complete privacy and secrecy, you'll talk. And for over an hour or so, you'll talk and you'll bring things to the surface and in light. And then they'll continue to love on you and they'll preach um, the truth of God's word in the middle of those circumstances over you and that thing. And they'll pray with you in order to bring freedom from things in your past so that you can walk in the hope of renewal here in the future. I'll never forget the first time I went through it myself. It wasn't here at the church. It was uh, about 10 years ago at the seminary. There was a counselor who went through a very similar thing, and, and it was kind of at the beginning of the seminary years as I was trying to discern specifically what this thing was going to look like moving forward. And um, I remember walking into this thing, and I don't know if, if you've ever been to a counselor before that just has unbelievable discernment. By the way, we're a church that absolutely affirms counseling, okay? Uh, we absolutely affirm it. There are people that are gifted and called by God to do things that you and I can't do. Go see a counselor. I love them. Anyway, so I'm there, and I don't know if you've ever been to one before, and they are able to see things about you you don't see in yourself. And he starts asking these questions, and I didn't know about certain hurts and things that were in my past. And all of a sudden, it's not very long into it that I start talking about Kelly Kmeyer and what happened that day. And it's not long that I start talking about the different failures throughout college, the different failures in my marriage, that I, the, the ways that I've dropped the ball and and just I, I expected more, and I, I just blew it here, and, and I'm not the man that I wanted to be, and all these different things. And, and it didn't take long before I started being honest about things that took place in the past. And I'm sitting there, kind of this broken mess in the middle of this thing, and it's never anything that you're like, hey, yeah, I want to go do that on a Saturday afternoon. But like I sat there in the middle of that place, and I remember he, he simply said, I want you to bow your head, and I just want you to be quiet. And he goes, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read to you these scriptures, and I just simply want to go really slow through these things. And I want you to personalize what the word of God is saying. And I want you to allow these words to wash over those particular things in your life that we just talked about. And these are the verses that I continue to rail on all the time here at the church. But he sat there and he opened up Romans 8 and he says, Therefore, Aaron, there is no condemnation for you, Aaron, for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has now set you free from the law of sin and death. And he just read that and he read it and he goes, I want you to just sit there and just soak in that. There's no condemnation for these things from Christ because his perfect life, death, and resurrection as a substitute for you was sufficient. He conquered sin and death. And so when Hebrews talks about that he's the great high priest whose sacrifice was sufficient for your sins once and for all, like that's actually true. And he began to read things in my favorite passages, 1 Corinthians 6, where it talks about all these different labels that we carry, the different labels for our sin. And he says, don't you know that these people will not inherit the kingdom of God? Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 10, let us draw near the sincere heart, full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean with an evil conscience, our bodies washed with pure water. And here's the reality, church. I was in the middle of a seminary, and I knew that my sins were forgiven. But what I needed to believe was that his grace was sufficient to completely cleanse those things right there that were looming over my head and lying to me over and over and over again and keeping me at a distance from going all in with Jesus. Church, he's not trying to hurt Peter further. He's trying to heal him. 
by going back to his past and touching it and saying, I'm here and I want to completely set you free. It's why he keeps pointing to the future. Peter, do you love me? You know that I love you, then feed my lambs. I'm not done with you. Yeah, I want to meet you right here. Do you love me? I want you to know that. But in the middle of that place, I want you to know you have a future. Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? You know that I love you. Take care of my sheep. Peter, do you love me? You know that I love you. I want you to feed my sheep. Peter's going to go on from here, and he's going to be, he's going to be the, one of the founders of the early church. Pastor, shepherd, shepherd of the sheep. People are wandering, and he's going to be out there teaching them. He's going to be out there on the day of Pentecost preaching the gospel. 3,000 people are going to be saved. He absolutely has a future. And in the middle of that place and in the middle of his failure, he doesn't believe he has a future. And so Jesus comes back and he meets him at the same exact way, location, time, and place that he did three years prior when he first called him into ministry in order to remind him that I am not done with your life, Peter. I have forgiven you. I have washed you clean. I've redeemed you. And you have a future. Church, some of you need to hear that. Some of you need to hear that you're not done, that Jesus is not done with you, and that his grace is sufficient for you, and you need to simply hear these words, move on, move on. Don't gloss over it and pretend it never happened once you've dealt with it. Receive his grace, let it wash you completely clean and move on. Thinking of Johnny Cash, you know Johnny's story, great career, hooked on drugs, you remember this, I mean he was just at the height of his fame and everybody loved him, was praising him, and he was all these things, and but people didn't know that he was massively addicted to amphetamines, ruining his life. Everything was crashing. He was in massive depression all the time, and he was suicidal. In his autobiography, he writes about this time that he tried to end it one night, and he decided he was going to take a flashlight, and he was going to wander in these caves, and he was going to go as far as the caves would take him. And then when the batteries would go out, he would curl up in a ball, and he would just let the, he would just let the amphetamines take over and take care of his life. He would never be able to get out of those caves. So he did it. He took a flashlight. He walks through the caves. It's about three hours. So many turns. He goes, I, I, have no, I would never be able to get back on my own. Flashlight goes out. He curls up in a ball. And he's about to go to sleep because he's, he's, he's really, really high at this time. And he says, as clear as day, God showed up and just said these words. He says, Johnny, I'm not done with you. Johnny, I'm not done with you. It's not your time yet. And he says, I remember wrestling with, with, with God in that time going like, I don't even know how to get out of here. What am I supposed to do right now? And he goes, just stand up and just start walking. And he goes, and I was in this drunken haze, and I didn't know what I was doing, but I could hear the voice of God saying, I'm not done. And I started stumbling. And he goes, I have no idea how I made it to the mouth of that cave. I got to the mouth of the cave. Two of my friends were there. No idea how they knew I was there. They rushed me to the hospital, pumped all these toxins out of my body, saved my life. I ended up giving my life to the Lord Jesus Christ shortly after that. You remember Johnny Cash singing at the Billy Graham Crusades, just singing about the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why would Billy invite Johnny to be a leader of worship at these crusades? Because the entire thing is about telling people who are lost and dead in their sins that Jesus died on a cross that your sins could be forgiven. And he walked out of the tomb alive, proving he has the power to completely wash you clean and completely set you free. And you don't have to live in bondage to your sin anymore. And you don't have to live in bondage to your guilt and shame anymore because where Christ has set you free, you are actually free indeed. Church, I don't know where you are today. I don't know what you came in. I don't know what your past is. All I know is that there's a story to match that. And there's a story of redemption and restoration that you need to hold on to. That you can start believing that whatever that thing may be. And maybe it's a label that someone hurled upon you when you were a child that you were dumb. 
that you are not pretty, that you are, I kept thinking about this word all morning long. That somebody came in believing that you're unlovable. That word was on my mind all morning long. And maybe that's a label that you came in here with today, that you're unlovable. Someone said it to you, you believed it, and it's kept you at a distance, and Christ has set you free. You're not unlovable. If you've ever questioned that, look at the cross. He suffered, bled, and he died for you that you could be forgiven. He walked out of the tomb alive so that you could know that you could be set free. He's not done with you. You have a calling, the same calling you had way back when. It was clear as day is the same calling he has for you today. And Peter's restoration story is affirmation. He is not done, and he is calling you to tomorrow.